This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. A year ago this week, America got its 45th president. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. I, Donald John Trump, do solemnly swear. That I will... Immediately, there was change and controversy from an argument over the size of his inauguration crowd to the appointment of a Colorado judge, Neil Gorsuch, to the Supreme Court. The Trump administration has arguably been the world's most important and fascinating story. I am joined once again by former state Senator Greg Brophy. During the campaign, he led Trump's agricultural coalition. And welcome back to the program. It's good to be here. And um, I was at the inauguration, believe it or not. You were there witnessing that. I'm interested in how you think Trump has changed things for Coloradans. And that includes yourself. Um, but let's introduce you just a bit more. As a state senator from Ray, you represented a wide swath of rural Colorado, more than 10 counties, I'm curious how much time you get to spend on the family farm these days. Not near enough. Um, when I ran for governor, we put my son in a school up here, and it's such a good school. We just kept him in there. He's a sophomore now, so another two and a half years of, of uh, being anchored to a school in the South Metro area. I was actually out on the farm over the weekend, uh, this weekend, and I go out almost every weekend in the summer. You do consulting and lobbying as well these days, including on renewable energy projects. I do. You know, renewable energy has been a boon for eastern Colorado, and I'm, I'm helping Excel with the Rush Creek project. Um, in it's a pretty Colorado. sizable wind project on the plains. 600 megawatts, and we anticipate maybe building another 1,000. Just curious, what do you grow on the farm and I, when you're able to tend to it? I grow corn, uh, and irrigated corn mostly, and wheat this year, and we've always grown a few watermelons. Watermelons. Yes. I think that uh, people associate Colorado more with cantaloupe. Well, we have, the, we have some really good watermelons. You know, the, the, the temperature changes from, you know, our, our daytime high, which is very hot, to our nighttime cool, uh, which is pretty low, uh, raises the sugar level in watermelon, and we grow great watermelons. All right. A bit of a picture of our guest, Greg Brophy. And as I said, your farm is near Ray in Yuma County. That's one of the counties you represented for a long time in the legislature. And in 2016, voters there supported Trump over the Democratic nominee, Hillary Clinton, by more than a five to one margin. 80 percent to 15. You came on Colorado Matters the day after President Trump was elected, and you called it a good day for America. We are a year later. What are your thoughts, Greg Brophy? It has been tumultuous and great for America. Look at what the stock market is doing. We have 12 new judges at the appellate level, a new Supreme Court justice from Colorado. Uh, we repealed the WOTUS rule, which was terribly devastating to agriculture. Water of Waters of the U.S., this was a rule that affected many in agriculture. Yep. It, 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 you know, they... Standing water on your farm could have been regulated, and it was a, it was a disaster for agriculture. Got that repealed. Uh, did this tax reform, which is going to be great for Colorado. Um, it's it's so it's it's interesting on this tax reform thing because Colorado is a relatively low tax state, and the tax reform bill that passed really benefits a state like Colorado. It it, it does two things. One, um, it changed the way the I think it's line thirty four on your ten forty form flowed. So they're giving you deductions after that on your federal tax form, which is actually going to slightly increase Colorado taxes. So the state gets a bump in revenue without increasing tax rates at all. Indeed, the governor has acknowledged that and uh, submitted an alternate plan for his budget as a result. Yeah. But overall, your your tax rate 
um, from your, your total taxation is going to go down for people who live in Colorado. We will uh, break apart some of the issues you've raised uh, just in the last few moments, but you called it tumultuous as well. Why do you use that word? It seems like every time Donald Trump tweets or uh, has two scoops of ice cream when everybody else only gets one, the media takes it immediately to DEFCON 1, and they do round-the-clock dissecting and and complaining about whatever has happened. And and then, you know, you think just when you think that that's going away, something new comes up, and it just seems like it never ends. It's a frenzy. Isn't the president feeding that by tweeting? Doesn't he often take it to DEFCON 1? He throws the stuff out and the media takes it to DEFCON 1. You held public office, you worked with the press, and I imagine that you gave thought to the words that you spoke. Uh, How do you react when you hear the president talk about other countries uh, like he did the other day using vulgarity? Or what goes through your mind when he tweets about his enemies, you know, who are often his fellow Americans? Uh, Does that give you pause? Uh, Obviously, I would like to have him not distract from the great things that are getting done in Washington so that we can do even more great things uh, on the one hand. On the other hand, um, in this day and age of social media, he gets a direct link to the people uh, without having his words filtered by anybody else. And, and you know, the, the supposed vulgarity from, I think it was Monday or Tuesday uh, or whenever it was last week, yeah. um, now is being called into question. But either way, you would think that if you're in a room with no recording going on, you're just negotiating, why would it be important for one person from that room to to go out and tell a story to try to purposefully put the president in a bad light? Well, one could say that that gives the people a fuller sense of his character and that that's important. Like, like we need an even more in-depth view of that? You say that uh, the American people already have a good view on we, his character. We, well, we see, we see plenty. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and it is a year this week that the 45th president of the United States, Donald Trump, was inaugurated. And we are getting uh, a look at the past year, what it has meant for Colorado in particular, from former state Senator Greg Brophy. During the campaign, he led Trump's agricultural coalition, And, uh, Greg, you said that you are involved in renewable energy, particularly wind on the eastern plains, which you say has been a real boon for farmers there. Uh, We have heard this administration, though, speak much more about fossil fuels and less about renewables. Is that a place where you disagree with the president? No, I I agree with him completely. I I do believe it's an, an important part of our national security strategy to maximize production of energy in America and export that energy uh, around the world as much as we can so that people in Europe and Japan don't have to buy fossil fuels from communists and terrorists. They're, the whole world is much better off if they're buying as much as they can from America. And yet the Trump administration has brought some uncertainty to those who place emphasis on solar and wind, for instance. Are you not feeling that? We didn't see it. I mean, it, none of that came through in the in the tax reform package. Um, it, we'll see what happens with uh, any extenders. But right now, the, the, the cool thing about wind is, is that it's actually unsubsidized. It's the least expensive form of electricity you can put on the grid. Does your enthusiasm echo uh, in Yuma County? Oh, absolutely. Uh-huh. Yeah, he is just as popular in Yuma County as he was on November 8th. That is his base. You bet. You are his base. Yes. 
Okay. You mentioned WOTUS, the Waters of the U.S. rule. This was an Obama administration regulation that gave the federal government authority over bodies of water, often small bodies of water on private land. But the the big idea there was that that water might connect with larger rivers and streams. The state director for Environment Colorado said of, of repealing WOTUS, instead of safeguarding our drinking water, the Trump administration is proposing to stop protecting drinking water sources for 3.7 million Coloradans. Uh, but how did it make your life easier as a farmer? It, well, it brought certainty because we weren't falling under these regulations yet, but they were coming and, and, and it's just expensive. And right now in, in agriculture, we don't have a lot of money. We need to have certainty, and we don't need to be overregulated. Let's listen to something you said during our interview with you right after the election regarding agriculture and trade, uh, which you thought would be a point of emphasis under Trump. Why is it that Japan has been able to send an unlimited number of cars to America, but they won't buy beef or rice or milk from America? Yeah, that's what I always thought. There's no answer for that. And it's because the trade representatives don't care about agriculture. Donald Trump does. That's you a year ago. Ag is huge in Colorado, and the state's biggest trading partners are NAFTA countries. It remains to be seen if Trump will pull the U.S. out of NAFTA, but he's called it the worst trade deal in the history of this country. When it comes to trade, are farmers and ranchers in Colorado in a better place today than they were a year ago, do you think? Uh, I would say it's neutral. There's There's been no real change uh, along the trade lines. Oh, well, now the, with the with the dollar falling, and I don't know if the Trump administration has anything to do with that. That does place American commodities uh, in a in a better in a better light around the world. You know, as as the dollar weakens against the euro, or or weakens especially against uh, the the renminbi or yuan from China, uh, then the average person in China can afford to buy more chicken or pork or beef, and we can send it to them. Yeah, that's a question of exports. What will you be watching? Uh, There are reports this morning that the decision is imminent on NAFTA from this administration. Well, I hope we can continue to sell agricultural commodities to Mexico. Uh, We ship a lot of popcorn out of of Yuma County, for instance, to Mexico. We want to continue to do that. And I, I think we will. You don't have doubts that those relationships will be jeopardized? It seems that the Canadians and the Mexicans are on alert ahead of a potential withdrawal. Well, they should be. And we need, we need a better deal. Um, and, and I think Trump will deliver that for us. Uh, on the tax reform bill, which passed last month, uh, it also served to remove the individual mandate uh, to have health insurance. What yes. do you think about that? That was great. You know, the, the, this health insurance thing under Obamacare has just been destroying lives in, in eastern Colorado. Now, now, and I will say that, of course, if you are a person who was unable to buy insurance and get help with your expensive medical bills, you benefit from Obamacare. But if you're just a regular farmer in eastern Colorado, uh, I, I'm talking to guys out there who see their monthly premiums go to north of $3,000. Aren't those going a, to go even higher with the individual mandates? eliminated and thus potentially a sicker pool of people uh, getting insurance. Well, the Obamacare approved insurance may continue to go up, especially because we will we will see people who have the ability to join associations and buy an affordable product that they want. 
Pollster Floyd Cerulli recently said this about President Trump. In Colorado, he is seven points down. He has a 36 percent approval after losing the state with 43 percent in 2016 against Clinton. His relentless catering to and communication with his base has, as expected, narrowed his support, not widened it. And like his national slide in approval, Coloradans' judgment of Trump's first year has been poor. Unless he changes strategies, he's likely to take down the Republican gubernatorial nominee and other candidates in the 18 races. What do you think? That's entirely possible that that uh, unless something changes, unless people focus on the economy and we see the growth that I think we're going to see this year in the economy, if they only focus on the frenzy, then it, it could end up being a bad year for Republicans. You know, it usually is in the first midterm election after a president is elected. Usually you lose seats. I think the average is 32. It sounds like you put that at the feet of voters, uh, of the electorate, not at the feet of the administration. Well, I don't know that you're going to change him, but the voters are the ones that have to actually push the lever, pull the button. Thanks for your perspective. You bet. Former State Senator Greg Brophy campaigned for Donald Trump in Colorado, and he joined us last year at this time and was back today to reflect on the first year of Trump's presidency. It's also been a year since that massive women's march in D.C. and Denver and throughout the country. We're going to check back in with the local organizers about where that movement is now. This week on CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. There's increasing frustration among people who are priced out and pushed out of Denver. They don't think the city is doing enough to fight gentrification and the displacement that comes with it. So a new grassroots movement is emerging. It's called Denver CAN, or Denver Community Action Network. What we're seeing all of this boil down to community control and community ownership of not just our land and our homes, but resources and business. Activist Candy Sidebaka is part of this new movement. That's the only way that we will create a buffer for ourselves to help us kind of navigate market forces acting upon us. Sidebaka lives in the Swansea neighborhood in northeast Denver. She has seen it change dramatically. And it has actually led her to run for city council. She was one of hundreds who strategized a path forward over the weekend at one of Denver's oldest black churches, Shorter Community AME, which hosted a gentrification summit. CPR Stephanie Wolf was there and she's going to tell us more. Hi, Steph. Hi, great to be here. Denver's been booming for a long time now. What was the spark for the summit? It really reached a boiling point in November when a coffee shop, Ink Coffee, in Northeast Denver posted a sign outside that said, happily gentrifying the neighborhood since 2014. So this sparked protest, and the coffee chain did apologize, but it was really a catalyst for the summit, according to Lisa Calderon. She's the co-chair of Colorado Latino Forum, and she was one of the organizers behind this weekend summit. We definitely are at a turning point um, because we have seen those types of offensive Um, ads before, and we've said things, but I think individually we've said them, there was never really a spark point. Um, I also think because social media, that it's easy to connect a lot faster. Organizers told me that at those protests, people seem to crave deeper conversations about gentrification and also information on how they can make a difference. I think there's a real sense of not having any power to do anything over this issue. Of course, cities all over the country and the world are struggling with this. 
But in Denver, they put together the summit to connect people with people and people with resources. There are obviously market forces at play here. People want to live in the city now. That demand raises prices. And longtime residents, renters especially, we know are vulnerable. Yes, but AME's pastor, Reverend Timothy Tyler, set the tone at the beginning of this summit that it's not just happening by accident. Whenever you have an organized plan to destroy historical communities and to drive out ordinary people in the name of progress, that's a social justice issue. Reverend Tyler has seen many of his congregates displaced by rising cost. And we are here this morning because for too long, we have grumbled and complained among ourselves, but we've not had the public discussion about how we live constructively and humanely with each other without trying to destroy each other's past present, or future. Many feel disenfranchised by their political leaders, saying that politicians have favored developers and left others behind. I understand uh, there was a, a big message for politicians, in fact, at Saturday's summit. Indeed. Remember Tay Anderson, the 19-year-old who ran for Denver school board this past election? Oh, yeah. He spoke with us after he lost that election, talking about its political aspirations. He's been very critical of Mayor Michael Hancock and City Council President Albus Brooks, who represents the district where the Ink Coffee is. Here he is at Saturday's summit. We are here to tell politicians that if you do not represent us, if you will not listen to our voices... If you will just kick us out it because you have a nice check from a developer or because 90% of your contributions are from developers, then let's, let me do you a favor. In 2019, we're going to unelect you. We're going to elect people that will represent our values. At those November protests uh, around in coffee, I remember demonstrators bringing up concerns about the I-70 expansion project, the urban camping ban, And the redevelopment of the National Western Complex in Northeast Denver, all those issues hitting North Denver in particular. Right. Speakers at the summit said they believe these policies and others are designed to get rid of certain people while attracting other people. Now, the mayor himself was not in attendance. He did send staffers. But he did address this particular complaint ahead of Saturday's gentrification summit. He hosted an online panel discussion I have never sat down at a table where we're planning the redevelopment of the National Western Stock Show or we're planning investments in Five Points and said this is just for the new people who are coming to Denver. His office told me the Facebook Live event was a way to let people know what help is available, like a property tax exemption for seniors who are 65 and older. They also took some questions from viewers, like one was about rent control, which right now is illegal in Colorado, and we'll link to that video online. Did any politicians attend the Community Gentrification Summit? There were probably close to a dozen elected officials there, and maybe a dozen political candidates also showed up. I caught up with at-large city council member Robin Kanich after a session about holding government accountable. I think that we have some special responsibility as elected officials in this topic, and so I'm here for both inspiration, motivation, ideas, and to just for the community to know that I'm seeing them and hearing them. Kanish said the city has been addressing gentrification, but she'd like to see a broader effort, so looking at better wages as well as housing issues. 
And taking responsibility and holding people accountable were big themes of this summit over the weekend. But responsibility for gentrification was not all placed at the steps of City Hall. That's right. The organizers behind this movement looked at gentrification through many lenses. So not just housing that's affordable and attainable, but also the criminal justice system and cultural preservation. And you saw that in some of the breakout sessions. There was one focused on how mass incarceration contributes to gentrification. And there was a session about lifting up socially responsible businesses. The construction companies that lift employees up through corporate structures that are cooperative through social enterprises, through profit sharing. We can invest in our local economies by buying locally, by hiring the people in the neighborhoods in which we operate, by paying a living wage. So this is Denver entrepreneur Kayvon Calabari. He's behind businesses that people may recognize in Metro Denver, such as Sexy Pizza, Birdie Magazine. He's also running for mayor in 2019. Calabari said everybody should take responsibility for this issue. That means as a consumer, he says, spend your money thoughtfully and intentionally and support local businesses. Were there other concrete steps people were asked to take, you know, real action items? Yeah. At one point, folks at this gentrification summit were asked to take out their phones and email their city leaders right there. We're showing you this example email because it's extremely easy to just send them a quick email about how you feel about how they're leading, how they're deciding policy, how they're voting for us. You could just contact Alice Brooks. There was also a lot of talk about creating some kind of unified calendar to really help people know when, where, and how they can attend public meetings. This term gentrification, it's so charged. Definitely. And I caution against calling these activists anti-development or anti-growth. Again, here's Lisa Calderon of Colorado Latino Forum and this new organization, Denver Can. So it's not that we're not asking for new people to come into the community and particularly business owners. We're just asking that it be thoughtful, integrating into the community, paying attention to the culture. We're also saying that, hey, if you're going to start your business in our community, hire locally. What happens next? Denver Can doesn't have centralized leadership. Organizers told me they don't want to assume what the priorities of the community are. So I think we'll see more community forums like this throughout the city. We already know that some of the people behind this event plan to run for office in 2019. But this wasn't just about candidates. I understand they hope to change elections themselves in Denver. Indeed, yeah. Saturday also marked the kickoff of the Elect Our Sheriff ballot initiative. Currently, the mayor appoints the sheriff, and this proposal would give Denver voters that power. Advocates will have to collect enough signatures to get the question on the May 2019 ballot. All right. Thanks, Steph. Thanks so much. CPR's Stephanie Wolf on how Denver organizers are moving ahead in the face of gentrification. When we come back, the strange case of a man who pushed his wife off a cliff in Colorado's busiest national park. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The story now of a murder that seems stranger than fiction. In 2012, Tony Henthorne was pushed off a cliff in Rocky Mountain National Park by her husband. And it wasn't the first suspicious death in his past. The case is the subject of a new book, The Accidents, by author Caleb Hannon. He speaks with my colleague Andrea Dukakis. Caleb, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Having written this book, what strikes you most about the case? 
You know, what's interesting is uh, now that the book's out, I'm actually being able to read reviews by by readers. And I'm not sure if this is a good or a bad thing, but the number of readers who review it as if it were fiction, um, that's the most surprising thing to me. We did our best to put up at front. This is a true story. This is true crime. And yet people are still, I guess, disbelieving of it. Let's talk about the murder. Uh, it was back in September of 2012, and the couple was hiking to celebrate their 12th anniversary. Tony Henthorne was a doctor really loved by her colleagues and patients. You describe her as shy and kind-hearted, and Tony seems constantly to be overshadowed by her husband. Harold Henthorne's controlling, um, but in the book, he also comes across as, as sort of goofy, not someone you'd suspect to be a murderer. Talk a bit about how he appeared to other folks. It sort of depended on who you were. If you just met him for the first time, he could appear to be extremely charismatic and extremely bright. If you knew him for a long time and you were family or friends, you ha- you saw that goofy side or you sort of learned to just kind of ignore 75% of the things he said because he was always talking. He was always the expert. Um, but he appeared to everyone who knew him to just be this massive success, this massive, massively successful business person. So there was an element of, well, I guess I should listen to him because clearly he's, he's succeeded in this one arena. And so, yes, goofy and kind of a know-it-all, um, but also just appeared to be a guy who kind of had everything. Tony Henthorne was from a wealthy family in Mississippi. What was the family's initial impression of him? You know, from the start, the Bertolets, her family, were, you know, they they just thought Harold was kind of weird. You know, he was a northerner. He was constantly talking, constantly bragging. But the Bertolet's impressions of him were, they were really tough to suss out because almost immediately after the wedding, um, Harold sort of stole Tony away from Mississippi, which is where she'd lived her entire life, and really exerted a level of control that was sort of phenomenal. Um, Her family was not allowed to talk with her on the phone. They were Um, living in Colorado. They were living in Colorado. They were living here. They couldn't talk on the phone together without Harold also being on the line. It was hard for them to get to know their son-in-law just because um, they were far away. And also, he just kept communications to a minimum. So describe their relationship a little bit. Um, You know, how did other folks uh, see it? It's a little difficult because some of the people who I spoke with knew the Henthorns through church. And um, so their view of things was that uh, Tony and Harold were were observant and they were pretty strict about it. And so from their perspective, the fact that Harold did all the talking wasn't terribly unusual. It still struck struck some of them as a little bit strange. But for people who didn't have that perspective, I mean, Harold was domineering. He was insulting towards Tony, even though she was successful in her own right. She was, you know, the ophthalmologist for the, the Colorado Avalanche. She, she had a good job. Um, so everyone who crossed paths with him sort of noticed these traits and noticed the fact that Tony, at least when she was with Harold, was demure and, and often just kept quiet. So you write about this suspicious incident um, that happens before the murder. Um, 
It's about a, a cabin in Colorado that Harold owned, um, and it was even before his marriage to Tony. And at one point, the couple's there, staying there, and Tony gets badly injured. Describe what happened. Yeah, so it's the middle of the night, and their daughter Haley is asleep inside. And the story that Harold tells is that he had asked Tony to help him clear some debris off the porch. When it, what ends up happening is that uh, Tony is struck in the back of the head with a piece of lumber that had fallen. She was below the level of the porch. And uh, it was a pretty serious injury. She had numbness in her fingers. She had extremes amount of pain in her neck. She actually told her mom later if she hadn't moved a split second before, she really thought that the piece of wood could have killed her. Um, this was roughly a year before she actually did die. Um, and it was it was a traumatizing incident for her. It wasn't really known to the Bertolet family until months later. Harold, because he controlled this communication, made it seem as if it was just this minor thing, when in fact it was it was nearly deadly. You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're talking to Caleb Hannon about his book, The Accidents. Um, can you talk about the day of the murder? Um, how did how did things start out? The day of the murder was the 12th anniversary of Tony and Harold's marriage, and they always did something special on their anniversary weekend. It was also one of the busiest days in Rocky Mountain National Park, and it started out relatively normal, except for one fact. Um, So there was a, a woman staying behind with their daughter who was babysitting her that day, and the the things that weren't normal is that the night before, Harold had sent dozens upon dozens of pictures to all these family and friends, sort of out of the blue of him and Tony and him and the people he was sending it to, just this rush of of excitement and social media, I don't know, uh, engagement. And then with the, the babysitter, he actually allowed Tony to talk with Haley on the phone without him on the phone hmm. for a few minutes, which had never happened. The babysitter had worked with this family for years. And that had never happened. And it struck her as strange at the time. And of course, after the accident struck her as even stranger. So he was trying to put up sort of this uh, facade to his family and friends about perhaps how close their relationship with. And he, he did want to give his daughter one last chance to talk to her mom. That's what it appears to be, which is... I don't know. It's about as cold and, and heartless as you can imagine. But yes, there there was this reminder to everyone he knew, look how great of a dad, how great of a husband I am. So he takes her to this remote cliff. And as we find out, he, he pushes her off the cliff. Um, and um, investigators find some pretty damning evidence. What do they discover? Well, they discover a lot. I mean, there's no shortage of things that Harold did or or left behind. But Possibly the most damning is that um, a sort of routine check of his car by one of the National Park Service investigators. They discovered this map uh, on one of the interior doors. And when they opened it up, they saw a large X basically at the place where Tony had fallen 140 feet. Um, And to give you a sense of where this was in Rocky Mountain National Park, uh, one of the rangers who'd worked in the park for decades said later that at most, maybe 10 people ended up in this one spot in the park. And all of those people would be like very, very skilled mountain climbers, which Tony and Harold, not at all. Mm. Um, so so not a place where you would just find yourself. Could she have, couldn't he have marked where she fell after? There are so many explanations. Well, no, not after, because he didn't actually get into his Jeep after she fell. Mm -hmm. But it could have just been a place where he had decided to end up. There are lots of of 
innocent explanations for so many things that Harold did. It's really the volume of things he did. And of course, the thing we haven't spoken about, which is the death of his first wife, too. Yeah, they also found out um, that Harold Henthorne had purchased several life insurance policies on Tony. And the really eerie part is the case is similar to another death, Harold Henthorne's first wife, Lynn. He collected quite a bit of insurance money when Lynn Henthorne died. What were the circumstances behind her death? Lynn died in 1995, and she died just south of here, uh, just south of Sedalia, on a dark, deserted road late at night um, when she and Harold were supposedly trying to change a tire. Lynn was crushed to death underneath their Jeep. Um, And that was an accident that the whole family knew about. Everybody knew about. But everybody had been told something different. And most people had been told it was a car accident, which you and I and anybody else would presume to mean a crash. And in fact, it was one of the stranger incidents that, you know, first responders or cops had ever been witness to. Nothing like the car accident we would have presumed. Because it, it fell on her. The car fell on it her. It pinned her underneath. Thousands of you know pounds of metal and steel pinned her for long enough that it, it basically killed her, choked her. There were several red flags uh, regarding Lynn Henthorne's death in 1995. Douglas County Sheriff's investigated, and they ruled the death an accident. Why didn't they pick up on any of the evidence? You can... The best person to ask is actually a guy who retired this August, and I spoke to him for the first time. No one had spoke to him yet. His name is Detective Dave Weaver, and he was asked to reinvestigate the case. Douglas County at the time was small. It hadn't had its population boom. There were, I believe, five detectives to cover 800 square miles. These were incredibly young, incredibly green cops who now make up the captains and the sergeants who who run the whole patrol today. They were inexperienced. They came to the scene thinking it was an accident, and they viewed everything that happened from that point forward through that lens. And even Detective Dave Weaver, who's friends with these people, said it was it was botched from the beginning. Um, it was a case that could have ended things then. It, it could have saved the life of Tony and, and years of pain and confusion. And um, it was just a really terrible investigation. So... Tony's murder was in 2012. It took a while for Harold to be arrested. Um, Tony's family had suspicions about his role in her death. Uh, some of the couple's some of the couple's friends did too. Um, why did it take him, you know, so long to be arrested? Well, it's one of the things that the prosecutor said at his trial, which is absolutely true. Harold did so many things wrong after the fact, but he did one thing right in both cases. He went to places where there were no witnesses. These deaths happened in extremely remote places. And he learned from the first death, uh, the death of his first wife, Lynn, because there were some people who were passerbys. They drove past and they saw his odd behavior. And he maybe thought, you know, that could have put him away. And so when it came to Tony, he just went to a place where there was no chance that anybody was going to see what was happening. And at that point, it was just his word against everybody else's and no one else was there. Harold Henthorne was never convicted in his first wife's death. Uh, He got life in prison without parole for the murder of Tony Henthorne. He denies that he killed her, and he recently lost an appeal in the case. What was the basis of his appeal? Yeah, you know, I'm not a legal expert, but there was a, a really tremendously interesting thing that happened in his first trial, which the prosecution argued as hard as they could that we should be allowed to bring up 
both his first wife's death and the incident at the cabin at the trial for Tony's death. And a judge uh, allowed that to happen. That was the basis for his appeal. His lawyer basically said, and this is true, it was enormously prejudicial to the jury to hear about those cases because it made them see Harold in a completely different light. And it did. But an appeals court said that doesn't matter. There's actually a doctrine uh, that's established that allows us to do that. Um, And so he lost. Caleb, thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Caleb Hannon is author of The Accidents. He spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis. It's about the 2012 murder of Tony Henthorne by her husband, Harold, in Rocky Mountain National Park. Harold Henthorne is also suspected in the death of his first wife, Lynn. The title is available as an ebook and audiobook. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Translation is an art form, more than taking one word and finding its equivalent in another language, but conveying nuance and subtext. Jessica Cohen of Denver shared in a prestigious award the Man Booker International Prize for her translation of A Horse Walks Into a Bar by Israeli author David Grossman. He wrote it in Hebrew. She conveyed it in English. Cohen will share her experiences as a translator this weekend at the Tattered Cover Bookstore. Let's listen back to our conversation from last year. Jessica, welcome to the program. Hi, Ryan. Thank you. This story takes place during a stand-up routine in a club in a small Israeli town. The comedian is a broken man, and during the couple of hours he's on stage, he turns from dark jokes to memories of his difficult childhood. Some in the audience are angered by this performance because they came to laugh. Others are drawn in as he exposes his deepest wounds. I'd like to start by hearing a little bit of your translation of the performance. You know how everyone's all up in arms about bullying these days? Well, I say some kids just deserve to get bullied. Because if they don't get the crap bullied out of them when they're young, it'll just get worse the older they get. You know what I mean? Not funny. Oh, I see. Sophisticated audience you guys are, with European standards. Okay, no problem. We'll come at it another way, which I think might be more up your alley. Here's a little psychological analysis plus emotional insight. Me, when I was a kid, I had the most accurate scientific gauge for knowing who was popular and who wasn't. I call it the shoelace gauge. Let me explain. Let's say a group of kids is walking home from school. Walking, talking, yakking, yelling. You know, kids. One of them crouches down to tie his shoelace. Now, if the group stops right away, but I mean every single one of them, even kids who were looking the other way and didn't see him crouch down, if they all stop where they are and wait for him, then he's in. He's good. He's popular. But if no one even notices him, And only sometime toward the end of senior year, like at graduation, someone goes, Hey, anyone know what happened to that dude who stopped to tie his shoelace? Well, then you know that that dude, he's me. What do you think made this story so compelling to a global audience, not just an Israeli one? Um, Well, I think that like any really good uh, work of literature, 
there has to be something that's very local, something that you can visualize as a place and a, and a character, even if it's a place and a character that you're not familiar with. But at the same time, there's a layer that is universal. There is something in there that is addressing uh, just the basic human emotions that we all share and that we all struggle with and, and relationships and love and hate and, and death and all those big words that we all try to grapple with every day. And, and I think some part of the reason that we read literature, some of us, is you know to maybe get a different perspective on how different cultures might uh, deal with those issues. And so as a translator, what are the toughest decisions you have to make? I think that the overreaching challenge is to get across the author's voice or you know, that might be the narrator's voice or the character's voice. Voice is everything in a good piece of writing. Mm -hmm. And, you know, often when I first look at a piece, I think, well, this voice is in Hebrew and how could it possibly be in English? But that that's the challenge is to create a character or or a voice that English readers could hear as someone real and perhaps even imagine or remember someone they know who might sound like that but not go too far away from the person that, that is originally there. I kind of think of it sometimes as a doppelganger. So you ah. know, we have this Israeli character, and he's very, very Israeli, but somewhere in the world he has some kind of counterpart that is speaking English, and that's what I try to find. I think anyone who speaks more than one language is familiar with uh, having a word in one language that just doesn't exist in the other. Is that true for English and Hebrew? Oh, absolutely. And yeah, I think it's probably true for every language. Um, yeah, there are definitely words in Hebrew that um, have many, many layers of meaning. Um, I think that's something that, that is really a main characteristic of the Hebrew language. I like to think of it as a, a language of depth, not so much a language of, of breadth like English is. We have many, many words in English. The English vocabulary is massive and Hebrew is quite small. But so many Hebrew words have these layers of allusions and associations that may be cultural, historic, sometimes big, biblical even. And those are things that are very difficult to get across in English. I'm dying um, for an example that came up in this book. Um, there's something that is... Um, a wordplay that the comedian uses. He does a lot of puns and wordplays. And one of them is based on a song that was kind of a political anthem of an Israeli political party. And he does a wordplay on it. Oh and my God, that was, it would be impossible to translate. It is impossible. And in fact, you know, I rarely say this. Usually I feel like you can translate everything, but there are those few occasions when you just have to give up and say there's there's too much here. There's too much cultural, historical baggage to try and carry across into English. So that was an example of something that in consultation with the author, we, we decided to drop because, you know, I don't like to use footnotes in fiction and bringing the explanation of what all of this means would just be impossible and would ruin the moment. So, so we did have to drop that. What about slang? Yeah, so a lot of slang in this book because the this comedian is, um, like I think most stand-ups, you know, he tries to be very current in his language. And I think this particular character, he's, there's a little bit of desperation about him. And one of the ways that is expressed is in his constant use of very 
uh, current young language, even though he himself is is not really all that young anymore. Um, so, for example, he uses a word uh, which in Hebrew is achukim, which actually comes from Arabic, like many Hebrew slang words, and it means it literally means in Arabic, your brother, my brother. But it's used in Hebrew to mean buddies or pals, close friends. So I went with BFFs in English, <laughs> uh, which has a, yeah, it's a little bit of a different cultural weight, but I liked the way. Um, you know, when it, when a sort of grown person in the States uses the term BFFs, there's a little whiff of desperation there. Like, look at me, I'm young and popular and current, and I know what the young people are saying, which is exactly what this character is doing. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with Jessica Cohen of Denver, who helped translate the book A Horse Walks Into a Bar by the Israeli author David Grossman. It won the Man Booker International Prize this year, and she shared in the prize for her translation from Hebrew to English. And as as I said, Jessica, this book is uh, about a stand-up comic and, and his long routine, and that means that there are a lot of jokes. And I think of jokes as particularly difficult to to translate. Is that true? They are difficult to translate, although, you know, I don't necessarily think they're more difficult than anything else. And although there are a lot of jokes in this book, it's not a funny book, Mm. um, which some people might be disappointed to to learn. Um, And so, yes, there are jokes. There's a lot of wordplay, which is difficult. Um, But I think what's more important here is the tone and and what he's doing with his jokes and, and the way that you know, if you read between the lines, really, he's 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 basically having kind of a mental breakdown on stage. The jokes are are the framework; they're the format because that's what he's used to getting up and doing every night. Um, but there's really a very personal and quite painful and tragic story that he's telling about his childhood and and his life. Earlier, you talked about the portion of the original book in Hebrew that you dropped because it it just didn't translate. How closely do you work with an author in the translation? Um, You know, it really depends on the author and on the particular book. A lot of times, by the time I translate a work, the author has moved on to something else. And and many of them find it quite difficult to step back into something that, that, you know, there is just not where they are anymore. But that said, I, you know, Every author I've worked with has always been uh, very available for questions. I do send lists of, of terms I'm unsure about or options that I have that I want to consult with, and, and they always do get back to me. Um, with David Grossman in particular, he is quite involved in the translation. Um, you know, I'll send him lists of questions. We discuss certain things. Um, he doesn't necessarily you know, go through the entire translation and comment on it. Uh, but he's definitely available and will give input when he wants to emphasize something or, you know, is unwilling for something to be dropped. And then I'll just try again and again until I get it right. It sounds like from that answer that there are sometimes words you come across in Hebrew you actually don't know. Well, once in a while that does happen. I mean, you know, I work with dictionaries and all, all translators do because sometimes a word will have more than one meaning. Often a word will have several meanings. And, you know, I like to make sure that I know exactly 
what the author had in mind, why he chose that particular word. So it's not necessarily that I don't know what the word means because that's something I can usually find out. It's more about what the author had in mind when he put that word in there. Uh, and, it's um, about intention as opposed to the strict meaning. Exactly. Intention and tone and, and emphasis. Um, and, and David Grossman is an example of you know a particularly brilliant writer who can always tell me exactly why, you know, this word or even this comma is where it is. Um, and that I think I've kind of learned that that to me is the hallmark of a really good writer is that they always know exactly why they did what, what they did and what they're trying to get across to the reader. He's exacting. Every comma is a choice. And you have to honor that. Uh, Jessica Cohen of Denver, the translator of A Horse Walks Into a Bar, which has won the Man Booker International Prize. How did you learn Hebrew? Or English. Grew, um, what was your first language? <laughs> well, I was born in England, but my family moved to Israel when I was seven. So I continued to speak English at home and, and read English, but all my schooling and you know my social life was all in Hebrew for the rest of my childhood until I moved to the States after college. Hebrew is an ancient language, but one that has to become modern, right? It is, yeah. Hebrew is a very has a really interesting story. It was, uh, you know, it's the language of the Bible, obviously, and it was dormant. It was unspoken for thousands of years um, until um, b- before the establishment of the state of Israel. There was a very conscious and deliberate decision to revive Hebrew as the spoken language, um, and you know there had to be a lot of invention and a lot of ingenuity to take this ancient language and make it usable by modern society. And to this day, there is the Academy of the Hebrew Language, which has committees that sit around coming up with words that don't exist in Hebrew for, you know, these days, it's usually technological things, but many, many different concepts and words uh, they will actually invent a Hebrew term for. And, you know, sometimes people do adopt it and use it. Other times they're resistant, but, but that does happen. Hebrew translator Jessica Cohen of Denver. She shared the Man Booker International Prize with Israeli author David Grossman for the book A Horse Walks Into a Bar. And she'll talk more about the art of translation at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax Saturday evening. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.